Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. We just did a survey with a bunch of our friends, actually, and we were like, which of these is written by a robot? And when we're looking at the results, right, it was a blind test. People could not tell the difference. They all thought they were human. But that's pretty exciting. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guests today, Tarek Alani and Aaron Myron, are two of the co-founders of Chorus.ai. At Chorus, they're applying generative artificial intelligence and news analysis to political communications and organizing. Tarek was previously co-founder and chief product officer at Push Black, and Aaron founded a group called New Majority. If you want to know what's happening in AI and politics, this is another company you should be aware of. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Tarek and Aaron at Chorus.ai. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Tarek and Aaron, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me quick biographies? For sure. My name's Tarek Alani. Got my start as a canvasser at a large nonprofit, and that's where I met Aaron, who's joining us today, and then Sam, our other co-founder, who's not here today. And we actually all got along immediately because this is a really outdated org, and we were always trying to bring it into the present and future and automate a lot of systems so we could spend more time on organizing and campaign work and less time on Excel spreadsheets. And we all went our separate ways. So I'll let Aaron introduce himself. I ended up staying in the field and ended up founding Push Black, which is now the nation's largest nonprofit media company. I know you interviewed Julian. Uh, that was an awesome interview. This whole AI thing came about. We know it's going to be a big deal. I think it's here to stay. And so Aaron and I and Sam, we got back together because we think that it can have a huge impact on this election. And we want to make sure that Democrats and progressives and the left have the best tool to, to do that. And that's it. I'll pass it to Aaron. Actually, before we get to Aaron, Tarek, I want to get a little bit more about your background. So tell me a little bit about where you grew up, what kind of family, how you, how you first got interested in politics, your education, that sort of stuff. For sure. I'm actually originally from Toronto, Canada, but then I grew up and I went to high school and college in North Carolina. And in college, you know, I studied history. I 
really was into the civil rights movement and anti-colonialism. I found my own history through that, and that really politicized me and, and ended up putting me into the sector. Tell me a little more about how it politicized you. How would you locate yourself ideologically? I would say anti-colonial in that kind of space or fear, right? Like understanding and seeing the bridges between larger, like when you look at colonialism globally, and then in the US, the movement for, for black liberation or the civil rights movement, as people call it. And you uh, just learning that history was so inspiring. And then seeing the cross and international connections and the fact that actually our fates are very much intertwined, right? And and we can't have liberation in one place without liberation in another place really had me thinking about these ideas around um, freedom and liberation and justice that ended up pushing me down this career path. All this time at Push Black, how has that changed you? How has that shaped you? It's been an incredible experience. There's still so much work to do, but nobody in America can be free until Black folks are free. And, and Black liberation, I think, is one of the issues that's really most important to me. Uh, and, and that's a huge one. Um, so folks can go back and listen to the interview with Julian to talk about that more. Also, it's made me a lot smarter. I've had to learn a lot of skills. I had to learn how to code. I've had to learn how to be a product manager. Uh, I've had to learn how to be a people manager. So I've just learned a lot of skills because, you know, 10 years ago, it was two of us or three of us kind of working on the side. And now it's a 30-person organization with a multi-million dollar budget. And one of the kind of real success stories in the types of communication that it does, the online communication that you've helped make happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Aaron, can you follow that up with your own introduction and biography? I'm also from Toronto, but Tarek and I didn't connect until we started working together. But I grew up and went to undergrad in Canada. I've always been political. I've had some folks that were really close to me growing up would talk a lot about we like grew up talking about special interests and how companies were screwing around with research and with lobbying and public education it was just sort of like what my family talked about i've had a few members of my family who had cancer growing up and i took biology and undergrad and it felt really detached studying what's going on with cells and cell mutations and like working on flies in the lab. If you, anyone's ever been in a bio lab, you, anyway, I'm not going to talk about the smelly flies. That's like the quintessential bad thing that everyone has to do. But I was sort of going like, this has nothing to do with what I care about. And these feel like problems where companies are spending like a huge amount of money messing around with the news and with legislation and so I did not, even though my parents were like, you should 100% be a doctor or a scientist. So I moved to New Mexico and was a field organizer in 2000, right after the Obama election, working at the same organization. Park and I were doing more. Since you guys met there, why don't you mention the name of it and talk a little bit about what you learned there? We, we're working at the, the Public Interest Network together, which is like a large group of nonprofits. Some nonprofits are behind the times in terms of the private sector or other sectors and how they use technology and as is government. And this was definitely one of them. So like Tarek and I on a Saturday would be, you know, dealing with like emailing back and forth an Excel spreadsheet. And neither of us are geniuses. We're like, I'm pretty sure this is what you would call like a loop and a conditional statement with like a data store. 
And so folks were like, you guys, what are you talking about? But, you know, we ended up learning, hey, like, you can like make it so that you can focus on organizing. Like I wasn't there because I wanted to like approve payroll for canvassers on an election. I was there because I wanted to canvas and make phone calls. I learned, and I think Tarek learned, like, you don't have to, like, the status quo probably isn't good enough, and it's probably not good enough in politics. And, like, Tarek started, like, one of the most amazing organizations that does this kind of work in the U.S., and I think you learn, like, hey, I can I can change things. There's lots of stuff that we learned there, but I think on the journey that we're on, that's definitely a big takeaway. It's something that that I guess each generation or each person learns when they enter the workforce, how flawed humans are that have come before and how imperfect organizations are. It's kind of shocking when you've built an organization and you have taken it to a certain point, you understand why you have made certain shortcuts. You understand why it's 80% of where you'd like it to be. And you're damn proud of getting it that far. And then you hire an intern and they're like, why the hell are we doing this without a database? Or why is there's this manual task that, that makes no sense. And, and that's how organizations often grow from the bottom. I think. Totally. Since you've mentioned there's a third co-founder, could you also Aaron, just say a couple words about Sam and, how you guys met and who that is? So Sam Landonwich was the chief of staff and vice president at the organization that we worked with. And like Sam was right there, like thinking about these sorts of things as well. He was the chief of staff when we met, but he went on to be the the vice president of the organization. You can have Sam back on and he'll tell a good story. I bet that's true. Tell me a little bit more about your career after that you were in that organization. I know, I mean, I looked at your LinkedIn. I know you went through Green Corps and worked at Microsoft and Athena Health and a whole variety of things that have majority in the title. Take me through that career a little bit and what you were learning along the way. Sure. I had like so much fun, like building stuff with Tarek and Sam. At the beginning, I was off the side of our desks. And by like 2015, I was the deputy CTO and I was building all the systems uh, or a lot of the systems for the organization I worked at. And then I ended up studying public policy and data science in grad school. As much as I didn't like it in undergrad, like the analysis and quantitative aspects of these things are like, it's just really concrete. It's really hard to measure social change. And if you can boil things down to outcomes and numbers, it's definitely helpful. But I actually moved back to Canada in 2018. And initially I was sort of going, I want to do something with politics and something with technology. And Canada's wild. I was looking for an opportunity to have an impact because we had a really important election in 2019 in Canada. And so get this, Canada, our university's post-secondary education is relatively cheap compared to the US. So it's like a few thousand dollars a year versus like tens of thousands. But as a result, we have really big post-secondary institutions. And so, you know, I was doing some number crunching. And if you look at half of the competitive districts in Canada's federal elections, they have a massive like 10, 20,000 student college or community college. There was changes to the election law in Canada where nowhere in Canada do we have voter registration, but there's five days of on-campus voting where all you need is your student card to vote. So I was like, this seems like a pretty high return on investment. So I, I started an organization that's now called New Majority that sends field organizers to these campuses and goes, hi, have you voted yet? And 
walks these young people to the polls because there's like tens of thousands of young people who are unlikely voters who are progressive who are walking within 50 meters of a polling location for five days. It's it's a pretty easy math problem. So I, I hired someone to take over as the executive director early this year. And Tarek and I were talking about like, it's this big election in 2024. We both have experience with technology and I have some experience with, with machine learning and artificial intelligence. And we're going like, what's something that's like really tangible at the end of it? Like not pie in the sky or a fun thought experiment. What's something where... If we build something, we've got a little over a year, we get it in the hands of candidates and nonprofits and the left and progressives and Democrats, like what's something that we could really make an impact in 2024? And that's that's sort of how Chorus was born with me and Tarek and Sam. Why did you call it Chorus? What is the relevance of that name? We were thinking about, you know, organizing is, you know, as an individual, you know, you're probably afraid and maybe angry and frustrated, and maybe you don't feel a lot of hope. But when you come together, you can go like, hey, we can use our collective action to to vote and to have our voices heard. At the end of the day, that's like what we're about. It's like, how can you get talk to one person and then talk to another and then another? So you're something that's bigger and you have more power than someone just by yourself. And Chorus is about that. It's like, as a lone voice, you can be heard but we're way more powerful when we come together. And and our organization is going, we take every digital campaigner in your organization and we, we help them go from a, a, a solo act to a full chorus or to a full ensemble. And, and things are more melodic that way. Tarek, what's your version of the kind of founding story here? What did you sign on to do and what did you conceive of and how did, and what are kind of the roles that each of the three of you play? The overall story is pretty similar, right? Like, I think Anna and I just been texting for like a couple months before we started Chorus because we were talking about just tech and the sector in general because we felt there is a hole; it's underfunded, uh, and it's hard to it's hard to build a business in the nonprofit and campaign space. There's just not as much money, right? But we both worked in the sector, and we were just always bouncing ideas off of each other. And we both started playing around with the new AI tools when they opened up a little bit more. And we were like, there might be huge potential here. And Aaron actually just, I think he was, couldn't sleep one night or something. And then the next day he's like, look what I built. And I'm like, this is incredible. And that's kind of how I think Chorus, I think he was also talking to Sam at the same time. And it kind of just got born out of that. And we started pitching some folks and got some traction. So we try to take it more seriously. Um, so as far as roles go, Aaron is leading the engineering. I've been leading the product side, which means doing a lot of customer discovery. So talking to potential clients to understand their real problem, right? We don't want to go to market with what we think the problem is. We want to have talked to dozens, if not hundreds of people. So we know exactly what each type of person's problem is going to be beforehand so we can build the right features. And Sam is an operational and strategy expert. So he's really helping us think through organizational structure, go-to-market strategy, and business development. And then we're all kind of doing some work on fundraising. Aaron, what was that thing that you built that night that you couldn't sleep? It looks into your eyes. No, I'm just joking. It was basically you put in a sentence about your campaign. We'd actually made it like, a, I love pizza. 
all of my handles on like everything is pizza lover and then whatever numbers, cause there's other pizza lovers out there. So I built a campaign where you just put in a little bit of information about like the world's running out of pizza. We don't have enough training for pizza chefs. And can you write the email, SMS, social for all of this? It creates a, a really compelling content. Are you talking about like chat GPT here or was it a different engine? They're built off of large language models. So chat GPT would be a chatbot tool by OpenAI, but the engine that that runs all of the, whether it's Anthropic or ChatGPT or whatever they are, they're large language models. So it was it was based off of like an API, using an API and fine tuning some large language models to be able to take what a campaigner would say about the organization and they put all their thought into it into like really compelling content that could move whatever audience they're thinking about to action. What did you see in the output of that loud, large language model that seemed better than what like a smart person could do? That's a really good question. Me and Tarek and Sam, we've, we've done a lot of campaigns and it takes a huge amount of time to write and communicate with your audiences. So like if you're a, a small person campaign, like everybody's the same audience. You're like the people who might be voting for you or the people who might be donating and volunteering and you're just sending them like whatever, but you still need to write it. You need to talk to them across all of these different channels. And then as soon as you get like a little bit bigger, like the organizations that we were running, you've now got like five audiences. You've got major donors, you've got grassroots donors, you've got different campaigns you're running. It could take a full day just to write content to one of those audiences. And then you got to generate variants. So it takes a huge amount of time which ends up costing a huge amount of money. And like the way that I think this manifests is a problem. Like I know Tarek's a dog person. Nathaniel, I don't know. Are you, a, what's, are you a dog person, cat person? I'm a donkey person. You're a donkey person. So I don't know the difference. So like, <laughs> let's say Cruella DeVille comes to town and she's running for city council and she's expanded beyond Dalmatians and she's going after all the different types of animals, right? Campaigns are probably just sending you an email or an SMS or a social saying, Corella is going after the pets. And you have a pet donkey and Tarek's got a, a pet dog and I've got a cat. And because we're like, okay, that resonates with me a little, you're going to get involved. But imagine if I said Corella is going after like Eeyore and Corella is going after, you know, puppies and Corella is going after kittens. But that's what like merged email or merged documents have always done, right? They've had the ability to fill in the word from a database. I guess there's a step past that going on here, right? Yeah. So yeah. it would be like, I remember when that first came out and like, it was like personalization. Folks were like, I was like, wow, this person knows my email. And now that's not personalized, but imagine I knew, or we knew, you know, organizations know what people care about, but they can't say, Hey, it's, it's the cats. Like I got to talk to this person about the cats because they don't have time. Because it takes a full day to just say cats. So they're saying, they're just saying pets. And because what we're able to do is speed up the time it takes to create content by so much and then infuse it with the news so we know it's urgent, we're able to personalize the content and help campaigns win. I've spent some time playing with some of these large language models myself. And there's a way in which I've been wowed by them in the speed in which things come back, even with a lot of complexity to a prompt 
and how it can pull in all these different parts together. It's something quite miraculous and read a little bit about how that happens in different cases. But also it feels, at least to this point, like a little short of what the most the most intelligent best writers could do, right? It's, although not in speed and so on, something about the spark that a human brings to something. Does that matter? You know what? It, it matters a lot. And I think that's our main differentiator from folks using tools like ChatGPT or, or Bard. Because if you use those tools, like you said, you're going to get something that's like, oh, this is a great structure. I could tell this is a robot that wrote this. We're using the right language model and we're using a lot of stuff in the back end and, and really following the process of a writer right in our back end to make our output very human. It is significantly better than what you would get just using one of those tools. Aaron, I don't know if you want to add anything. If you're a campaigner or a dig or a comms person or a digital person, you're spending most of your time is going like, who are my target audiences? And what's the, what are the problems for them? And what are the actions I want them to take? And what frames do I want to be in? And what frames do I want to avoid? And then you're like going, what's urgent today? that's going to move my audience to action. And then you're spending a lot of time writing this stuff, but the art and the craft, a lot of it comes through thinking through the strategy of a campaign. And what we're doing is we're not going like, hey, we're writing this all for you. We're, we're going, hey, we're you put your time and thought and blood, sweat and tears into crafting the strategy. And then we're going to do the this other piece so that you can, instead of just talk to one audience, you can talk to all of them. The, the other thing, just in the nuts and bolts of what Chorus is doing is we're indexing all of the news in the US and Canada in real time. And we're matching it using our AI with your audience and campaign. So we can hyper-personalize what matters. If you've got an audience that cares about abortion in Ohio, we can surface what is the most urgent, critical, relevant issues for the abortion battle going in Ohio. And then we can infuse that into your content so it's going to have the context of what's going on in the news. So that in of itself, like researching takes a whole bunch of time and writing this. And so we're allowing you to drive urgency based off of the news cycle in SMS, email, all your social posts. And it, it, what, for what would take a day, it takes just minutes using our platform. So just to back up one step, and, and that's all very intriguing and, and makes a lot of sense as a way to harness AI in a campaigning environment. Can you simplify for, say, a campaign that might be listening to this? What have you built and how would it get used? And, and kind of what are the outputs? I mean, you've, you've said clearly it can write a message to a specific audience in different formats, but make that more concrete somehow. For sure. So think concretely, it's going to help take your top-level campaign, one-pager strategy notes, a draft of your notes, even an article in a couple sentences, allow you to take that brainstorm. You're going to dump that into our tool, and it's going to first spit out a very cohesive campaign narrative strategy. It's also going to allow you to choose which geographies you care about, what targets of interest you care about, and that takes about two minutes once you paste that information in. From there, 
in the app, you can do two things. You can create content based on what you've done, or you can create content with news. So if you just create content, it's then going to allow you to create emails, text message, social posts for your campaign. And you can define your call to action. You can provide any additional context like, hey, we have a goal of X petitions or X dollars or X monthly donors. And then you can also, like I said, choose to ingest news into that content as well. So what we'll do is, as as Aaron mentioned, it's going to surface the most relevant news for your campaign. So then, right, you don't have to go and update this. So let's say tomorrow you actually see that a governor is looking to sign a bill, but he's 50-50. You want to make sure you get more petitions into his office. Well, that article is going to pop up for you. And then you can just hit write content, sign a petition, and it's going to embed that urgency and the, the facts of those articles into a compelling way into that content, whether it's the social post, the email, the text message, etc. The other thing you're going to get is daily intelligence. So in your inbox every day, you're going to get a digest, not only of all the relevant news for your campaign, but also a quick narrative of why it's critical to your campaign as well. And that's just going to help a keep folks, especially who are doing rapid response or doing electoral work up to date quickly, like in 30 seconds. Some campaigners and digital organizers, they're spending two to three hours a day just reading the news. And this is going to help cut that down to five or 10 minutes. Aaron, what that has been generated by your tools in terms of like a digest has surprised you? I think what's been really cool to see is you can put in a campaign and we're able to find like national news, news that's super specific to your locality. You know, here's information for opposition research or ally research. And because of the way that we've got a mathematical representation of the news and mathematical representation of the campaign, because it's not just like brittle keywords where if I say maternity, it's going to miss reproductive health because it's math, we're able to match it with these articles. And in your inbox, you can go like, you get an article and it's like, here's what you need to know today about finance of um, fossil fuels. And there's local stuff. That's what's going on in the, in the U S there's the protests that are going on in Toronto, where I'm, I live around the film festival and a bank investing. There's what's going on at the G20 meetings. And it's able to go, hey, these are actually, the way we've structured it, it goes, these are actually really different stories that have different geographic scope, have different, you know, targets or people or organizations of interest. And it's able to go, here's five or six different articles and pull in those, those facts. So like, I don't know if it's surprising for us. We're just going like, this is really powerful. How important is a news roundup for your campaign or your election initiative to understand your allies, your targets, what's trending. And you can just have that every single democratic campaign, progressive left-wing organization with our tool can have that in their inbox every day. So they know exactly what's going on. When I used to talk to digital campaigners over the years, One of the chief issues that someone who staffed a campaign would complain to me, let's say, about was the vetting structure and the time that it took to get a message out. They wanted to be trusted to write something and be able to put it out there when it was topical, when it was fresh. And 
in careful campaigns for good reason often the campaign or the principal in the campaign would want to say this is coming out under my name i want to make sure it's accurate some campaigns had a, a mockable structure where 16 people had to to sign off and other campaigns were very loose what would you recommend in this case like as directly generated you're potentially not even having a human look at it, although it was a human prompting it. Do you think there ought to be a structure for vetting these kind of communications and how much editing and alteration and fact-checking and political strategy-checking ought to be layered on top of this, if any? Tarek, you can add on to this, but I would just think of it as like, this is someone who's written a draft. With any draft, you have an editorial process and you would follow your organization's editorial process. And we're some of the things we're building out are tools. You should come work for us. That's a big pain point for folks. Tarek, over to you. I mentioned customer discovery. So one of the problems folks talked about was exactly that, like this kind of project management, stakeholder management, where you want to get something out quickly, but it has to go through all these approvals, or maybe you have different agencies or firms working for the candidate or organization. So they not aligned on strategy and messaging. So we know what's going to be critical to build those workflows into the tool, right? So actually building approval queues, assigning permissions, et cetera. And then disagreeing with Aaron, like it's considered a very, very good first draft. You know, we're really proud of the content that the content's creating, but it is created by a robot. People should absolutely fact check it. Even robots make mistakes sometimes. They make them a lot. We have a big header on on our, our platform that says, even robots make mistakes, please re- read and review everything. I mean, and I would think that it becomes a little tricky question politically if you're a politician and a tweet went out under your name and it blew up on you. You would say, you know, as a junior staffer, blah, blah. If you go and say, our robot did this, we're trusting our campaign's communications to an artificial intelligence, that seems a little bit hazardous to allow your voice to be taken over by a machine, even in draft form, seems a little challenging politically. Do you agree? I don't agree with that because, and this again goes from talking to comms folks, campaigners, strategists, and Aaron was touching this earlier, their most high leverage use of their time is the, the strategy, the narrative, the platform, the audience. But they're ending up having to get sucked into writing and drafting lots of content, right? And and so this is a tool that allows them to produce that content 10 times faster, which I think then gives a lot more time to then fact check it, to make sure it's right, to review the voice and really dig in. I think oftentimes what's happening is actually somebody spending a day, two days writing a draft of an email, and it's already... Uh, a day and a half late at that point, right? So then those QA processes end up getting pushed because people feel pressure to get it out. I think Chorus actually helps the QA process because it's still a human-centered in design where folks are putting the strategy, choosing the content to create. uh, And then that just gives more time to review and and have those safeguards. Tarek, you mentioned this term campaign narrative strategy. To me, that's a term of art that I guess I grasp, but I'm not entirely clear about. Where is the source of the campaign narrative strategy when working with 
chorus? Is that coming from the campaign? Is that coming from the collaboration between the campaign and this tool? Help me understand that. So it's coming from the the campaign. Like I mentioned, folks are, are putting in their one pager, their thoughts or ideas or article and their opinion on that article. And then our tool will help brainstorm and, and craft it into what we're calling a campaign narrative strategy. Having a good campaign requires a cohesive and coherent narrative, right? You, it's about storytelling. As humans, we're conditioned to understand and respond to stories. So what that means a campaign has to have a overall story arc or narrative. And that has a couple of fundamental elements, right? What is your vision for the world? What does the world look like when we win, when you win? Um, what's the problem? And, and what's the solution for that problem? And then, you know, what's the strategy, I, your theory of change? And then finally, who's the audience that you're trying to reach with this campaign? And what's the takeaway you want them to have, right? So oftentimes, Folks have this, but it could be a little bit jumbled up. Our tool is just extracting those components and then putting those as the specific components because then that helps our engine write better content because then it knows all the inputs that it needs to create compelling content. Aaron, uh, my understanding of these large language models, which is a little thin, is that they're kind of stateless and they don't remember previous conversations really and so in order to carry forward an idea, you sort of have to pass that information kind of as a parameter or part of the prompt to the machine. You mentioned like a voice. How are you able to tell the machine to maintain a particular voice, to pass to it a strategy? How do you store and continue to augment that as you go forward with something that's stateless. At the end of the day, that's like what we've built. And whether it's the voice or tone or structure or the actual like context, which could be the news or the history, that's ultimately what we've built. So the difference between us and ChatGPT or BARD or any of these tools is the ability to do that. So yeah, that's what Chorus is. As you work with a client, as Chorus your application is employed by a user, what what kinds of things are being input and remembered and then turned into a prompt to a to an AI? This would be like the news choices that you've made. So like what news you think is relevant and you want to put in. There's the background on the organization. There's the content that you've written previously. So like as you write content and you make edits in our tool, we're able to learn and, and improve the content based on the edits and the feedback you've given us. The writing samples that you're providing and using in our tool, they iterate and, and incorporates the, that feedback. Tark, Tark, I don't know if there's anything you want to... That's, that's basically what it... We're able to learn with you. So as you use Chorus, it becomes more you know, Nathaniel's voice or the voice of the campaign that you're working on. You guys are not developing the AI, you're employing it. So where does the current iterations of what you're using for a large language models, where does that come up short or does it of what you'd like to see down the road? Or what are your expectations about improvement in the tools that you're using, making a difference for your clients over the long run? Just one clarification. There's a zillion existing models that are out there. And part of our process is we fine tune 
which have billions of parameters and we're fine tuning them. So if you're just using, you know. So does this mean you're using like an open source tool that you can modify yourself? Exactly. That yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. And you're, and you, do you want to share what that is? We're, we're using a whole bunch of different ones for, you know, some are better. There's a website called Hugging Face, which is a leaderboard of like the, all the different models that are, are out there and some are better for being really creative. There's lots of different things. It's there, there isn't a winner takes all for the, for these large languages. So do you, you sort of think that your tech backend will be in a constant state of flux as different things get developed? You can basically switch out the back end of this without getting too much into the nitty gritty, but there's a basic way that these open model, these models have been developed. So every model needs a prompt and it needs something called temperature. If we want to swap in a new model, we're not rebuilding the whole thing. There's some tuning that we would have to redo, but you can just swap in different models pretty easily. There's a big difference between building a product even with a lot of customer discovery and making a business, they're quite linked. But can you talk to me about what you've seen so far in how, what's working and not working towards building a business? What have you been learning as you try to build an enterprise that can be profitable and, and serve your clients? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So I think the biggest learning so far is that there is a huge swath of like archetypes and willingness to pay for different types of campaigns and organizations. Right. So I think our challenge will be how do we simplify that into two or three potential plans and how do we figure out which of our features and outcomes are the true drivers of value for those different segments. We have some folks who are like, look, based on the budgets of this type of campaign, I could pay you in the hundreds. We have other folks saying, hey, I would pay tens of thousands of dollars a month for this. So we're really understanding what's the, the value generator for those different segments. And then what makes sense from a profitability perspective then to, to charge. That's not a very detailed answer because we're still kind of in the process of figuring that out. Well, well, it's early. Do you have a viable product at this point? Do you have uh, customers using it and paying you? Where are you? So we are in that transition. So we are in a closed beta right now. So we have in the dozens of folks using the product for free. We are hopefully by the end of the month going to phase and start charging. So we're in a couple of negotiations and conversations with clients. I've actually had a number of interviews of late of other people in the intersection of AI and politics. Whenever there's new technology, entrepreneurs think about how to apply that to their arena of choice or opportunities that they see out there. What do you two currently see going on that's interesting in this intersection? The way that we're going to think about data is completely different. So I think a lot of folks might have played around with ChatGPT and gone, oh, this can like rewrite my laundry list in Shakespearean prose. We're going to be able to talk to data and say, give me a list of all the people who are unlikely voters that live within 30 miles of Akron who care about, you know, X issue, and you'll be able to surface that to folks. 
in a way where before you'd have to know query or the ins and outs of the voter file. And a lot of our technology is built off of, of using semantics to move data. There's a lot of it that's also like tuning our content creation, but like at the end of the day, that's going to completely change. We're not just talking about communications. We're talking about like how you interact with vast amounts of data. You've said that you're ingesting news in North America. You're, it sounds like you're also bringing in a voter file. Is that right? Then how is it finding the people in a certain area of Africa? Oh, I'm saying that that would be, I was saying hypothetical. Chorus is not, is not doing that, but I think that's like what we're seeing out there. I think that could be really exciting. Yeah. Cause I have talked to other folks who are working on that road and just curious, like it's, it's interesting to see who's in what lane and who's overlapping and, you know, where do you fit in? When you think about the technology that's available to campaigns, what do you see as uh, complementary that's out there? I think it's a good question. This new AI revolution maybe sparked our idea, but then we were we actually went into talking to folks with saying, hey, the product we build actually might have nothing to do with AI depending on what the pain points and customers are. So I think really it's, figuring out and understanding the core problems that campaigns, nonprofits, and and other advocacy groups have, and then building the ecosystem around that, right? So I think that there are three really big ones, and then how can can the ecosystem then slot into solve them, right? One is, we're talking about, it's time, right? Like, it just takes a lot of time to, whether it's creating content, doing data analysis, doing whatever. Another one is audience where ultimately it doesn't matter how good your campaign is or how important it is if you're not reaching your audience right um, and that again intersect both of those things intersect with, intersect with content where you can't reach an audience if you don't have great content um, but it takes a whole lot of time to create that content and then i think the third one is going back to that stakeholder and project management issue where yes we have like constituents we have americans or, or whoever as your audience, but then internally as organizations, as partners, as coworkers, how do we work together to then move as quickly as possible? So I think like all the problems got to fall into those three things. And then how are these tool suites going to evolve to then adapt with technology and with the changing media landscape is the ultimate question. I remember when I first started building political software, it was built on a client server model. This is sort of pre-internet enabled applications. And there came a point where it became obvious that software was going to start to be delivered through the internet, software as a service. And we had to adapt to that. And for a while, campaigns were very loath to put their data up on the web. They just were scared about that. It seemed less safe than hosting it on their local drives. Hard to remember, but that was the case. It feels to me like there could be a period here where campaigns are loath to trust new technology like artificial intelligence because of worries about what AI could do. You know, is it going to be harnessed to to help robots shoot at us or are political campaigns going to be disrupted by fake videos of candidates doing things that they didn't actually do or voices saying things that were concocted by AI. When you are talking to 
people out there? Do you see people being a little worried about adoption for for the reputation of AI, or is that not an issue at this point? I think folks are really excited that we're thinking about this with how do we infuse the news? So it's like we have a source of truth, right? Like we didn't build a tool where you say, you know, some words into our app and we're going to create speeches for you and all that kind of stuff in your voice with your video. That feels kind of gross to me. Ours is like, you tell us what you care about. We find the news. We send you a newsletter of what matters. If you're like, oh yeah, this does matter. And I'm going to just write the content that I would have spent a day working on. I'm going to now talk to 10 audiences instead of one audience. We're the anti-misinformation. I don't know what that word, there's a word for it. Real information. (laughs) You know, we're real information. We're like giving you like, what did the New York Times or like... Non-alternative facts. Yeah, like real stuff. You know, we're giving (laughs) the campaign real stuff to talk about. We're not, you know, we're not a fake news farm or there's lots of pernicious applications. This is like, how do you talk to your audiences for what they care about? Well, there is news out there from newspapers online and so on. There's also misinformation online. How do you make sure that you're only dipping into the more accurate streams of data out there. So we've got like rankings that are associated with the different news sources. And then there's just tools that are out there to go like, this is like a fake news farm. And we don't include those in our sources. And the user at the end of the day selects which article. So if they're like, oh, the New York Times says this, or the Aaron Myron all-star basketball team says this, they're probably going to pick the New York Times. What's an ideal client for you? If you could reach out there and and have the campaign organization that you most wanted on this, who would it be? I'm hesitant to name like any one organization, but I would say that any organization that's doing a ton of digital comms and advocacy. So I think that means, right, you know. Planned Parenthood or something or. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Like a Planned Parenthood or any type of organization like that. And then any any campaign of any size, right, whether that's. Biden's campaign, a Senate campaign, a, a local city council race, anybody who's has a need to communicate with their audience and constituency and, and drive them to take action. Aaron, what do you see as the biggest competition for this as you get something out there that has legs and some people are using? We're super focused on, you know, getting our product out to folks. I'm sure MailChimp and HubSpot and Salesforce, I know they're creating some tools like this, but I think what makes us really unique is we're pulling in political news or news that's relevant to your campaign to in, to drive urgency and help you do personalization. You can check out our, we're at uh, chorusai.co, but if you want to see the, um, the difference that makes in driving urgency and personalization for your campaign, I think it's pretty different from what's out there right now. AI as anything early in the kind of entrepreneurial cycle. There's a lot of combination going on, a lot of acquisition. Where are you folks on being bought up or how do you think about that? I'm, I'm trying to like not introduce bugs when I ship something. I'm just joking. We're not introducing bugs. I, th- I think we're, we're super focused on like what's going to happen in this next election. How do we make a difference? I don't think that it's not quite on our radar right now. What should I have asked you that I have not? Tarek? How good our content is, probably. How good is your content? I think it's excellent. 
I think the content that we're producing is really strong. Uh, I've been working in this space for a long time. And actually, it's funny, we just did a survey with a bunch of our friends, actually. And we were like, which of these is written by a robot? And when we're looking at the results, right, it was a blind test. People could not tell the difference. They all thought they were human. But that's pretty exciting. Or scary. Aaron, what would you wish I had asked you? I think you crushed it. You, you asked some good questions. That's the first time I've crushed an interview. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> if you're interested in, in, in finding out more what to do or what do you think, Tarek? Should we, should we try and try and get some, get some web traffic? Out of my gigantic audience, tell them if they're interested, where should they go to find more information? So if you're interested, you should go to chorusai.co, C-O. You can fill out a form to right now. It's uh, to, to join our, our private beta to, to get on the wait list for that. And maybe by the time this is on the air, we'll have a whole bunch of new features that we, we're not going to talk about now, but we'll have, have then. And you can sign up and start making your entire digital, each member of your digital team um, from a, a solo act to a, to a full ensemble. Where are you in raising money, capitalizing this enterprise phase? So we're, we're really excited to have received funding from Higher Ground Labs. Um, and we've raised some additional angel fundraising. Right now, we're, we're laser focused on, you know, shipping and understanding how we can solve problems for folks. And ideally, in the next few months, we'll be in a place where we can go like, folks love our product. We're raising more money for your campaign. We're activating more voters. And think about how can we how can we raise additional resources so that we can get this in the hands of as many campaigns as possible going into 2024? It's super early for an enterprise, as you guys have both acknowledged, but you've probably learned something about what it takes to start getting a company going in this peculiar space. Anything that you think would be useful to other people, perhaps following in your footsteps? Tarek? Talk to a bunch of people before you build anything, number one. And then number two, identify where you think the most risk is, i.e. what's the pivot point or leverage point where your business might fail and tackle that thing first. Anything from you, Aaron? I think those are awesome. I think like find folks who you want to work with who complement your skills, right? Like who can add, can do stuff that you could never dream of doing and where ideally you can do the same. Sounds good. A joy to talk to the both of you today. Anything else you want to say? Thanks for the opportunity to share what we're up to. Thanks for your time. Those were Tarek and Aaron. They're at chorusai.co. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. 
If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.